Amen. Amen. And God good. I want everybody going through Finding the Rock to stand up and everybody going through the Married's class with Jeremy back there. Hello, Jeremy. And where's Ronnie? Is he with you? He's already back there. So all of you going through the Married's class or through Finding the Rock, God bless you. Head on out to the foyer. And you can still join Finding the Rock. And we got a new Finding the Rock beginning Sunday at 9 o'clock. If you don't want to do it tonight, you can do it Sunday at 9 o'clock. Well, that's a lot of people going. God bless them. Give them a hand as they go. That's a lot of them. And so we've got a few of us left here, and that's fine. I don't care where you are as long as you're in the building. No, I like you in here with me. Look how I give. Look at that crowd going out. So God's going to bless me in return. Amen. Somebody said to me, why do you have classes on Wednesday night? Don't you want them all in there with you? I said, I want them where they're going to be most blessed, healed, delivered, and spoken to. And if they need something in their marriage, that's where I want them. And if they need something, uh, well, you get, you get the gist. How many of you are ready to get into Romans tonight? Amen? All right. Well, let's do it. And we're going down the Roman road. We're in chapter 12, which is an incredible chapter in the book of Romans. And I know I've had you stand a lot tonight, but we need the exercise, right? So let's stand one more time. And we're going to pray over this, Romans 12, because this is crucial if you, if you want to put into practice Romans 1 through 8. you got to do Romans 12. So he's pulling it all together here, and let's just pray. Father, everyone standing right now in this house is a living sacrifice. You have purchased us with your blood. And now, Lord, we come to you and ask you to speak to us. You own us, Lord. Now help us to respond to you according to the word of God. Help us, Lord, to respond to you and to follow this instruction tonight. And we thank you for it. Will you just breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Now notice we, we call this living sacrifices, and that's what God has called us to be and to do. Now for the last three chapters, 9 through 11, has been all about Israel, right? All about the Jewish people. And we have seen Paul's intense burden for his own countrymen. He's got a great burden for the Jew. So much so that he was willing to go, actually go to hell for eternity for them if he could have. That's love. And we've looked at the history of God's sovereignty in dealing with Israel. He's sovereign over Israel, and God is sovereign over the world. History is His story. Do you know that tonight? Well, it doesn't look like it, Pastor Jeff. Oh, trust me, it is. And we are racing towards the end of time. And when we get there, we're going to look back and see that, yeah, though the devil did a lot of things on this old earth, God was sovereign. And he's sovereign over you too. Amen? He's in charge of your life. The steps of a good person are ordered by the Lord. And though he fall, he will not be utterly cast down because the Lord's holding you up with his hand. So we've seen his sovereignty with Israel. And having dealt with the principles of the gospel and the problems of the gospel, now the principles are Romans 1 through 8. The problems of the gospel are Romans 9 through 11, answering the Jewish question. He now deals with the practice of the gospel in the lives of Christians. Now, it is typical of the teaching of the epistles, the letters written, written to the church, that belief is followed by behavior. I promise you, whatever you believe is going to decide how you behave. Look at how somebody's living in their life, and it'll tell you what they really, truly believe deep down. Amen? So we don't look at their just their talk we look at their walk so belief is followed by behavior doctrine and deeds now the discussion of the spiritual life of the christian is going to come in two parts first paul deals with the christian as a believer and then with the christian as a brother he does all of this in chapter 12 first as a believer then as a brother or a sister all right now his challenge to the believer has to do with the believer's body, which Paul now reveals to be the ultimate key to the practice of the victorious Christian life. So how many of you want to live a victorious Christian life? 
Amen? Don't you want victory? Because with victory comes peace and joy and just feeling generally good about things. Well, if you want a victorious Christian life, which I don't think a lot of the church walks in, you've got to understand chapter 12. It has to do with the believer's body. Now, it's of little value to know the truths of Romans 6 through 8. What is 6 through 8? You are crucified uh, you know, with Jesus. You are dead to what? Dead to what? Sin, but alive to who? God and Christ. All right? That's Romans 6 through 8. You have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, you live. Yet not you, but Christ lives in you. We are declared to be dead to sin. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Now, that's 6 through 8. But if the body, your body, is not surrendered so that the life of Christ can be expressed in the everyday affairs of life, 6 through 8, all the truth in it won't mean a thing. It won't work. In other words, we really need to understand 12 to be able to execute and live in the reality of chapters 6 through 8. Y'all are quiet tonight. Give me an amen or an oh me. Okay, now I'm, I, you're going to be thinking. Now watch this. God beseeches the believer to make a presentation of his body to God. A presentation. Now, not by coercion, not by force, but because it's the proper thing to do in light of what God has done for us. That's why we are to present our bodies to God. What a concept. But let me just toss something your way. Before you were saved, you gave your body to sin. Not me, Pastor Jeff. Really? Did you live on this planet? Because if you lived on this planet, yes, you did. You gave your body to sin. And that's what we do. See, whatever we're yielded to, is what we're going to give our body to. Whatever philosophy we believe is what we're going to dedicate our life, including our body, to. So everybody alive on this planet is giving their body over to something. Drugs, alcohol, immorality, themselves, money, or God. So it's the proper thing for us to give our bodies over to him. Look what he says in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by what, everyone? The mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Reasonable. It's reasonable for us to give our bodies to God. Now let's look at this. When we see a therefore in the Bible, it's always good to look and see what it's there for. When you see a therefore, you need to go before it and see what the therefore is there for. Okay? Now, therefore, when you see it in a verse, it indicates that something really important has preceded the current passage. And you've got to read your Bible in context. A text without a context is a pretext. If you don't get your Bible in context, that's where false doctrine comes from. That's where a lack of, of understanding comes from. So when you see it, therefore, let's go behind it and see what it's there for. In this case, it has a very simple explanation. God has saved us. Can everybody say amen to that? <clears throat> Aren't you thankful he has saved you? God has saved us from what? From our sin, from its penalty and power. What else did he do? He saved us from self in all of its features and forms. How many of you can say, I know I need to be saved from myself? It's yourself that got you in all your trouble. All right? He saved us from self. And he has overruled the destinies of nations. He has triumphed in his grace. And he has multiplied his mercies. He has, as it were, besieged us with his mercies. And he has overwhelmed us with unmerited favor and grace. So, therefore... He beseeches us by the mercies of God to present our bodies in light of everything he's done for us as living sacrifices. It's the proper thing to do in light of all of God's goodness. When you really think about what the Lord has done, what does it mean but to say, Lord, I present my body to you, a living sacrifice. 
I give myself over to you. I'm not in this thing a little bit. I don't have my, my toe in the water, but I'm giving my whole life and self over to you. And if you haven't done that, then I want to tell you something about you, though I may not even know you well. You're not living in victory. Well, let me prove it to you. It's not only the proper thing, but it's also the practical thing to do because it makes possible the practice of the principles found in chapters 1 through 8. God wants us to live a holy life. Amen? In the home and on the highway, at the counter and at your work desk. We're not holy on Sunday and devils on Monday. Amen? Now, some of you may be. I'm here tonight to snap you out of it. You're not supposed to be holy on Sunday and live like a devil on Monday. He's called us to a life of holiness 24-7, 365 days a year. That's never going to happen without a presentation of your body to the Lord. I'm going to say this until I can tell you get it. You've got to commit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know the, the New Testament does not recognize in any time or place with any person, Jesus being their Savior and not their Lord. They immediately understood in the New Testament, when He saved me, I gave Him everything. I presented my body to Him. The link between the two is a presented body. The link between Romans 1 through 8 and Romans 12 is a presented body. Now as believers, we can live our lives on one of three le levels and here tonight or anybody listening by radio listen carefully to me you're living in one of these three categories we're about to look at sensual soulish or spiritual for instance a person who is ruled by the physical is sensual they are ruled by their physical appetites and therefore they are sensual they're living a sensual lifestyle. To be sensual doesn't mean we continuously live in the worst forms of physical indulgence. It simply means we're ruled by the senses. And that's not the will of God. He wants you ruled by faith. Listen, the just shall live by his senses. Is that what it says? The just shall live by his feelings. Is that what it says? The just shall live by his emotions. Is that what it says? No. The just shall live by his faith. All right. On the other hand, it's possible for us to be not sensual but soulish in our expression of the faith. Now, what is the soul? The suke. What is it? It's your mind, it's your will, and it's your emotions. Intellect, emotions, and will. That's what makes up your soul. And there are people who are soulish. They live according to their soul, their mind, their will, or their emotions. Now this person, for instance, if they live according to their intellect, and I've known people like this, they live according to their intellect. They may be a walking encyclopedia of Bible knowledge, yet when you get to know them, there's not much spiritual fruit. They're intellectual and it stops there. They can Listen, there are professors who stand up in seminaries and teach, but aren't even saved. They live by their intellect. They don't know the Lord in their heart. There are preachers who stand in pulpits and preach, sadly, who have never personally met Christ. Theirs is an intellectual assent to something, but it's not a true spiritual experience with Christ. They don't have much spiritual fruit. They're intellectuals. They're intellects. Or they might be totally emotional. Anybody know emotion-driven Christians? Oh, I, man, I do. They abound in churches. This person is always looking for the next emotional high. He or she gravitates towards emotional experiences, goosebumps, and the latest spiritual fads. If they don't get goosebumps in church, they look for a church where they can get goosebumps every single time. I guess we could call them Holy Ghost bumps. There's nothing wrong with being moved by God. But folks, we're not to be emotion-driven. We are to be driven by faith. We are to, to live by faith so that if you're going through a rough time and you don't feel a whole lot, you don't get out of the race. You don't quit going to church because you're going forward in faith, not emotion, and not intellect. All right? 
Now, on the other hand, a believer might have an iron will. I've known people like this. He or she may be great in making hard decisions like throwing away cigarettes or breaking some other addiction. They've just got this, I've got this iron will. And they're tough. And they're gritty. But you get to know them, and they don't have much fruit. They're kind of mean. Not much love. You can tell that somehow or another the fruit of the Spirit is not being grown a whole lot. Listen, a believer may have two or even all three of these factors, intellect, emotions, and will, so that at face value they appear to be a great exemplary Christian. Yet at the same time, they may not be spiritual at all. Do you know that that's a very subtle trap? You know what we would call them? Religious. Religious. They have a form of godliness, but they're not walking in the power of it. They're not walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's a trap. Well, then what do I do to be truly spiritual? How can I, anybody here want to be spiritual? You're supposed to be spiritual. And the more spiritual you are, the more earthly good you are. Now watch this. To be truly spiritual, the Holy Spirit has got to have complete control of us. And the key to this lies in the surrender of your body. Amen. If the Holy Spirit has control of the body, He's got control of all of you. The intellect, the will, the emotions will all be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. Remember that? Romans 8 was all about coming under the control and the influence and the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is not a list of rules and regulations to obey. It's a life you live it's a relationship you enjoy. It is leaning on someone else's power to live it out. And his name is Jesus. And he sent the Holy Ghost to live inside of us so that we would lean on him and do what we could not normally do in our flesh. That's what it's all about. And a lot of people miss that and say, well, I'm going to be a Christian, so give me the rule book and let's go. It's not a rule book. It's a life. It is fellowship. And you know that Paul said in one place, he said, the communion, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We are to fellowship with that Holy Spirit inside of us. He is the comforter. He is the strengthener. He is the guide. He is the empowerer inside of us. Hallelujah. Now then the person is a spiritual Christian. When the Spirit of God is in control of you, leading and guiding your life, then you're a spiritual Christian, expressing in all the ways you possibly can the beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to start looking like Him, thinking like Him, seeing people like Him, being filled with His goodness. Now this presentation of the body results in a transformed life. The Christian life is not a rehabilitated life. The Christian life is not a New Year's resolution life. The Christian life is a transformed Formed life. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. It's been found difficult because people have not understood why God gave the Holy Spirit and how we're to live this thing out. Now, we do not worship the body like the Greeks did. If you look at the Greek culture, which our culture loves to do, and our colleges love to do, who glorified the body, the human body, in their sculptures and in their Olympic games. They, 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 they worship the human body. But we're not like the Greeks. We don't do that. Nor do we crucify the body like the ascetics. What do the ascetics do? They whipped themselves. They walked around in burlap sacks. They, they, um, they, one guy sat on top of a, a pole. Now I'm telling you the truth. Sat on top of a pole like a great big bird's nest on a, on a ship sat on top of a pole for 30 years. He was a well-known ascetic. The ascetic philosophy said the only way you defeat sin is by beating up your body, by punishing your body, because they considered the human body to be evil. But watch this, church. Your body is not evil. It's good. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not talking about your body. Well, 
Well, I thought it was. Well, you thought wrong. When it says the works of the flesh, it's not talking about your body. It's talking about that inward thing inside of you, that fleshly nature you inherited from Adam that gravitates towards sin. The human body, God created the human body and said it is bad. Is that what he did? No, he said it is good. So then how can you come along and say it's bad? It's not, and it's not evil either. But these ascetics, they would starve and mutilate their bodies to put sin under. We don't do that either. What do we do? We simply consecrate the body so that the Holy Spirit, who has made it his temple, might have free access to all of its courts and free control over all of its activities. So when the Holy Ghost comes and says, I want you to get up in the morning, an hour before you have to get up and I want you to pray, that immediately goes against your will, doesn't it? Your soul, your mind, will, and your emotions. But if the Holy Spirit has control of you, you get up. You're going down that lunch line after church at the nearest restaurant where you love to go and you start getting to that dessert area and your eyes fall on that fresh chocolate cream pie and your flesh says this is your day that's your pie but the Holy Ghost says I want you to walk right past that because I'm teaching you discipline now when the Holy Ghost is in control we say yes sir and we walk right past that pie hello there you're not mine God bless you you are for somebody else and you move right along then you have come under the discipline of the Holy Spirit and God is going to take charge of your life this way and the more you yield to the Holy Spirit the more spiritual you become now watch this look what he says don't be conformed to this world and but be what everyone transformed so you can either be conformed or transformed it's your choice but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good acceptable and perfect will of God now what a loaded verse let me just take a few words there because words are powerful what does the word conform mean don't be conformed to the world conformed refers to the act of an individual assuming an outward expression that does not accurately represent who he is on the inside. In other words, you're being shaped from the outside and it does not conform to your inner reality, your inner life, who you really are. You're being pressured into a mold that does not, is not in line with your inner man. That's conformity. Anybody felt pressure to be conformed lately? Oh, man. J.B. Phillips writes this. He translated this verse this way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. What a great, great translation there. We're not to let that world out there. And that's the battle, is it not? Every single day, the Christian is swimming upstream because the world every day comes down on us, pressures us, tries to squeeze us into its way of thinking, its way of doing, its way of seeing things. It happens every single day. I told you there's two kind of churches in America. The first one is caving into the culture. What are they doing? They're allowing the world to squeeze them into its mold. They are being conformed to this world. But when that happens, nobody can tell the difference between you and the world. But no, the second kind of church says, I'm not to be conformed. I'm to be transformed. So I'm not going to think the way the world thinks, walk the way it walks, talk the way it talks. I am under another master, and he is transforming me. And that's how I'm going to live. Now, the word world, when it says, don't be conformed to this world, what is the word world? What does it mean? What's he talking about? The beautiful creation out there? No. The world, when it uses that word, means the condition of humanity, which, since the fall, is in spiritual darkness. With a nature and with tendencies and influences that are controlled by the powers of darkness in opposition to God, and they are now under the sway and the influence of the prince of this world, who is the devil. That's the world. That's, when it, that's the same word used, love not the world neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, that is the, the world system that is under the influence of the devil, all that is in the world 
The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are not from your heavenly Father, but they are from your enemy. And the world, this world we're talking about right there, passes away. And the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. So he says, you're not to be conformed to that world. Uh-uh. You're not to, re- you're not to bend, bow, break, or back down to this culture. The world has its fads. It has its fashions. And they change continuously. Its mold exerts pressure on us all in terms of dress and diet. And even more seriously, areas of life like morals and ethics and religious beliefs. Right now, for instance... With every single church in the United States of America, we are being pressured, squeezed into the mold of the world's thinking that certain kinds of immorality are not immoral at all, but they're fine. And we are being pressured and even threatened to go along with that and be squeezed into the world's mold. But the true believer and the one who wants to be transformed will say, no way. The Word transforms me. The world does not conform me. And I will not let the world conform me. I will let the Word transform me. Now the world, I like this, is the devil's lair for sinners. And it's his lure for saints. It is human life and society with God left out. Now I ask you a question tonight. Has God been left out of American life by and large? Has God been pushed out? That's right. And what's come in? Secularism. And what is the pressure of the world? That the church will go secular with it. We will not do it. We will not do it. Because we're on God's potter's wheel. And he's shaping us. And we're not going to be conformed to the world. Now, the believer whose body has been laid on the altar for God will not allow himself or herself to be conformed to this world. And boy, do teenagers need this message in the schools. You don't need to be conformed. Be transformed. The believer who gives his body to the Lord will be morally changed. His life is not molded from the outside, but it's molded from within by the presence of God's Holy Spirit. Boy, this is good stuff. I might get this CD because this is good. We need to hear this, church. The pressure is on, the gloves are off, and the world is doing everything it can to push the church into its mold. We will not go. We're going upstream. Amen? Now notice he says, but be transformed. Instead of being conformed, be transformed. By how? The renewing of your mind. Well, the word transformed occurs in only three other places in the New Testament. It is such a powerful word. But only three places in the New Testament is the Greek word found that we translate into, meta, into transformed. It is used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus. How was Jesus transfigured? He, he stood on the mountaintop. Three of the disciples were with him, and it says all of a sudden his whole being became shining like the light of the sun. He's a normal-looking man standing there, and suddenly he begins to shine like the brightness of the sun, transformed. That's the word. And it's used to describe the glorious change wrought in the believer when he steadfastly contemplates the Lord Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you're going to become like him. It is the word from which we get metamorphosis. The dictionary definition of that is simply change of form or change of character. See, God's going to change you. Aren't you glad? You may not be what you're going to be, but you're not what you used to be. And how did that happen? By a New Year's resolution? No, 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 no. You gave your heart to the Lord and He began a transformation process where you are going to be basically and fundamentally changed. And all you got to do is bask in the sun and water the seed, stay in church, stay in the Word, stay in fellowship, and it's going to happen. One man waters and other plants, but God gives the increase. All right? So change of form or change of character, it's on the way. The best example is the caterpillar. I've always found this in nature to be amazing. Because here's this little, this little caterpillar. All he's doing is walking around chewing on leaves. All he's thinking about is eating. He eats, 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 eats. You see a caterpillar, he's on leaves. 
he'll go onto a leaf. When he leaves, there's no leaf. It's gone. He's chewed it all up. All he is is one great big huge appetite. Reminds you of you before you were saved? And then he weaves himself into a cocoon. And inside that cocoon, he becomes jelly. And this amazing thing begins to happen. He undergoes a metamorphosis so that one day this thing that was all it was doing was eating, this cocoon begins to break open and out comes these wings, monarch, butterfly, swallowtail, butterfly, comes out antenna, wings, stands there, dries out for a minute and before he was now he's total complete change be not conformed but be metamorphosized look what you used to be and look how you are now flying in the spirit wings like eagles running and not being weary walking and not fainting God has fundamentally changed you, and he's not done yet. Amen? That butterfly comes out of that cocoon in a way that he's not even recognizable. Now, it's said that the face is the index of the soul. Did you know that if you walk with God, it's going to help your face? Every lady in here say amen. Because most ladies care about that, and some men do. Every man in here say amen if you, if you care. Well, there's one or two that care. We don't care if we get gnarly. We're guys. But watch this. If you walk with God, he's going to do for you, lady, what Max Factor could never do. Did you know that the face, it it is said the face is the index of the soul. I'm telling you now, mark it down. You can tell a lot by how somebody has lived by the way they look. Some of you are going, hey, you're loved in here. But watch this. The face is the index of the soul. When a believer truly dedicates his or her body to the Lord, then seeks the Lord throughout life, the imprint on their face cannot be matched by max factor. Because righteous living will affect your face. If you're a bitter person, it's going to show on your face. If you're an unforgiving person, it's going to show on your face. If you're walking around with a grudge, it's going to show on your face. If you're hooked on some drug, it's going to show on your face. The face is the index of the soul. Abraham Lincoln was was once asked to appoint a certain man to a high government post. Lincoln said, I don't like his face. He had room to talk, right? I'm just kidding. He, he, He was such a majestic person. Seriously, Lincoln Memorial, we were blown away. But... He said, I don't like his face. But surely, said the petitioner, the man isn't responsible for his face. Lincoln said, every man over 40 is responsible for his face. The way you live is going to show on your face. Have you ever noticed somebody will get saved and their face is hard, wrinkled, tense, sad looking? You give them a year of walking with God and see them again and there is a difference on their face. Moses spent time with God and came down. His face was glowing where they had to put a veil over it. He was glowing in the dark. It affected his face. So there's a great incentive, lady, to walk with God. It'll help your face. Now, the Holy Spirit works within the life of the believer by renewing the mind and transforming the soul. And then Paul says that you may prove. Now, here's one of the great reasons that you renew your mind and undergo transformation. Because only then can you prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Every Christian is responsible to discover for himself what God's will is for his life. I can't tell you what God's will is for your life. I can look at you and get to know you and I can see the giftings. But you've got to discover God's will for your own life. How are you going to do that? By undergoing transformation. By the renewing of your mind. As we spend time with God in the Word, in worship, in a consecrated life, having presented our body to Him, we will discover that, first of all, His will for us is good. That's why we say here all the time, God is good all the time. All right? What God plans for us is the best 
that omniscient wisdom and divine love can conceive. You cannot beat or better what God has for you. God's will for you is the best you're going to find. It's the best you're ever going to know. And how are you going to discover what that is? Worship God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Spend time with him. Get into his word. And we're also going to discover that his will for us is what? Acceptable. Acceptable. God will not ask us to do that which we cannot accept. He brings us along life's path, maturing us as we go, so that when we come to Canaan and its giants, we are ready for them. You know, I've noticed this. If it's God's will, he's going to give me a divine want to do. If it's God's will, he's going to give me a desire to do it. I'm writing a book on that right now. That when God wants you to do something, you're done for. Because you know what he's going to do? He's going to give you a burning in your heart to do it. Holy Ghost heartburn. He's going to give you Holy Ghost desire to do it. And you're going to want to do the will of God. How do you discover the will of God? What do you want to do? What in ministry attracts you? Because God's going to give you a desire to do what he's called you to do. Now, we'll finally discover that God's will for us is perfect. No plan of ours can improve on the plan of God. We only see bits and pieces, but he sees the whole thing. And it's going to be perfect. In the end, we will look back and say, let's read this together. His way for me was good, it was acceptable, and it was perfect. Give him a hand of praise for that tonight. Amen. You know, when I got saved, I got saved in juvenile home as a 16-year-old boy. I got Harry Hines Juvenile Detention Center. I was carried from the Richardson Jail to the Harry Hines Juvenile Detention Center when I was 16 years old. Terrified. Busted for sale of narcotics. They took me in there, took my picture front ways, sideways, gave me the number on the chest, the whole bit, and slammed the door shut. And I thought, this is it. I'm done. It's over. Because the judge said, I'm going to see to it. You're tried as an adult, and I'm going to send you to prison. Based on that, as a 16-year-old, terrified teenager, I heard the gospel about three nights later in that juvenile home. And I had never heard it before. And I gave my heart to Christ that night. Now, about two years later, I didn't get sent to prison. I got probation. I, I met the ultimate judge, and he had mercy on me. And, but I got probation. But I went to a Bible study a couple of years later, and there I saw these people just filled with the Holy Spirit. I said, God, if you'll give that to me, I'll give you anything and do anything. And he said, said to me, literally, say that to me one more time. I said it one more time. Bang! I had an experience with the Holy Spirit. Those of you listening by radio, you're thinking, uh-oh, he's going Pentecostal. No, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm going Pentecostal. <laughs> because it, it is Pentecost, and I'll be as Pentecostal as is the Bible. And the Bible is quite Pentecostal. All right? In that, it's all the Holy Spirit and His work. And when I got filled with the Holy Spirit and had this incredible experience with the Holy Spirit, I became a worshiper. And it was in worshiping God and spending time in His Word and going to church every time the doors opened that He began to reveal His will to me. And how was it revealed? I began to experience an undeniable, inescapable, irrefutable burning to preach and teach and say and declare the Word of God. And you know what? It's never changed. And, and so that's how I came to know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He revealed it to me. And I can tell you, it's been good, it has been acceptable, and it has been perfect. I could have never come up with a better plan for myself. Amen? Now look what he says. Now he's going to deal now with spiritual gifts. Uh-oh, grab your chair. Spiritual gifts. Everybody's got one. Turn to your neighbor and say, you've got one. You've got a spiritual gift. Now watch, for I say, through the grace given to me, to everybody who is among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You're not all that. That's what he's saying. But to think soberly, because God has dealt to every one of us a measure of faith. You didn't even come up with your faith. God gave you enough faith to get saved. He gave you a measure of faith. So you didn't get that yourself. You didn't come up with it. God gave it to you. Now, 
He goes on and says in verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many, look around you, many, are one body in Christ. Everyone in here equals one body in Christ. And individually, that's you in your chair, members of one another. In other words, you're not your own. You're not only His, but you belong to one another. You are members one of another. That means we depend on each other. We lean on each other. We're supposed to one another one another. All right? Now look what he says in verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace. God looked at you and by his own wise decision said, this is the gift I'm giving him. This is the gift I'm giving her. He says, the grace that gave you the gift, let us use them. Let us use the gift God gave us. Then he names them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let's use it to our, uh, in our ministry. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in ex exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Notice, every one of those things he named are gifts given to you by the grace of God. He says, don't sit soak and sour. Use it. Use it. Now, he begins with a warning on the consequences of pride. We're not to start thinking that, that we're better than other people. We are all members of one body. Nobody's better than another. Nobody. Black, white, yellow, red, any educational background, any financial status, at the foot of the cross, everybody is equal. That's what he's saying. Now, they, they were then encouraged to use their individual gifts for the benefit of the entire church. That's what the gifts are given for. Our gifts are not given to us for us. But we are to, they are to be used in building up the body of Christ. Right now, hopefully, I trust I'm building up the body of Christ. I know I am. And I know I'm building up the body of Christ listening by radio. I'm building up the body of Christ. That's my gift. But in turn, you're supposed to go out and use the gift God gave you, not for you, but to build up the body of Christ and make it stronger. Now, they were to think of themselves with sober judgment. Paul makes it clear that each member of the church had been given a measure of faith. So how can you go bragging? You can't brag when your faith was given to you by God. Every gift you've got was given to you by God. The body of Christ, says Paul, is like a human body with all of its members performing various functions. My hand is holding this clicker to change the slides. My mouth is talking. My eye is seeing you. My ear is hearing you. Every member has a different function. Every one of you, you are called in the body of Christ. Every one of you. There's not a one of you that's not called in the body of Christ to contribute to the body of Christ. You are called and you have a gift that grace gave you according to the wise selection of God. Do you believe that? Now, unity in diversity is the theme that runs throughout this section. The Christian faith is not for lone rangers. It's meant to be a corporate experience where every member is contributing to the whole. That's why you need church and I need church. I don't just need church because I'm the pastor. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd be in church somewhere. I guarantee you, always was and always will be. Because it's not a lone ranger experience. I'm not out there a lone ranger with Tonto, okay? I am... A member of the body and so are you and we're supposed to be contributing to the whole as for the gifts Paul mentions here they are prophecy what's prophecy it's communication of revealed truth that builds up believers that's what it is when you read prophecy more times than not in the New Testament it doesn't it's not talking about foretelling the future it's talking about the proclamation of truth I'm prophesying right now the proclamation of truth when Billy Graham preached the gospel. He was prophesying in a way. He was preaching, declaring the truth. Now, service. What is service? It's practical service to help others. That simple. And our church is really good at that. Practical service to help other people in the name of Jesus. 
What about teaching? It prov- teaching is to provide guidance and moral instruction. I teach. I teach and I preach. That's my gift. And so when I teach, it's often moral instruction, providing guidance. It's when we open up the Word and it guides us in our life and living. Now, giving. Giving is a gift. Cheerfully contributing to the needs of others. There are people, everybody is supposed to give something, but there are some people who are directly called by God, I've known them, to make a bunch of money, and they give it, and they bless others. They are called to the ministry of giving. Encouraging. Encouraging just means you encourage, you comfort, and you exhort others. I I owe a lot of my, um, I don't know, my past spiritual success to two or three really strong encouragers that God sent into my life in my young years. Encouraging. Leadership. The leader just leads in the execution of good works. What about mercy? I love the ministry of mercy. Activities such as feeding the hungry, caring for the sick and the aging. There are people that gravitate to that. That's their gift. It is mercy. They can't pass a stray cat in the road without stopping and taking it home. They are always wanting to help people with practical things. They empathize with the needs of others. Anybody know somebody with a gift of mercy? Anybody got the gift of mercy? One person? All right, we've got a merciful church. Anybody got the gift of mercy in here? That's better. All right. And then next, in verses 9 through 13, we're headed towards the end. Paul delves into the realm of personal relationships. Now, uh, this is a wonderful list of little one-liners of how we are to deal with each other. How many of you have realized that are in local church, like this one, that we have got to learn to get along? Got to learn to get along. How many of you have learned that we're going to have to overlook some faults? Have you been in church long enough to realize that not everybody is a saint the way you thought they would be? (laughs) Have you been in church long enough to realize there's some people here that are not like you? Have you been in church long enough? I don't want any hands on this one. Have you been in church long enough to realize there's some people in that church that you don't naturally like? Don't say amen or anything. Just look at me and smile. But you've realized that you can love them even if you don't like them? All right. Look what he says. Let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, be real. Don't be all, I love you. And then you turn around and stab him in the back. Let it be real. And then look what he says. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. You know what that means? Know what to shun and know what to keep. You can learn that one thing. It'll help you a lot. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Then he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to prefer somebody above me? I'm supposed to treat somebody like they're more important than me? Yes. Yes, you are. There's nobody more important than me. Hey, yes, there is the person sitting next to you. Look what the Message Bible says. I like this. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. That doesn't bless your ego, does it? The Message Bible continues. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. That's verse 11. Don't burn out. In other words, keep the oil of the Word in your lamp on a daily basis. That's one of the things that's in the book I'm working on right now. Keeping the oil in your lamp. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning. Remember that one? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That goes back to the 70s. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning. Keep me burning till the break of day. (laughs) Hey, you got to put the oil in your own lamp. Now, then he says in verse 12, Be alert servants of the Master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit. Say this with me. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Don't be a quitter. Pray harder. The tougher it gets, the tougher you pray. If you keep your lamp filled with oil, you will not spoil. Now, then he says in verse 13, help needy Christians, be inventive, 
in hospitality. I translate that to mean be accessible. Next, Paul deals with the issue of personal vengeance, and here we come to something very sticky. Let's read it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them, and do not execute Texas justice. Ever been tempted to execute Texas justice on somebody in the church? You know, you want to whoop them and then repent. Be the wrath of God. Show them what God thinks. Don't drop to your enemy's level. Blessing and praying for them will keep you free. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be happy for the happy. Don't let jealousy in. If somebody gets blessed, rejoice with them and hurt when they hurt, cry when they cry, laugh when they laugh. Then he says in verse 16, get along with each other, don't be stuck up, make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Translated, don't be cliquish. I hate church cliques. Don't be a clique. Reach out to the lonely. Reach out to the unpopular. Take them in, love them. Don't consider yourself above others. Now here it comes again. We're closing out the chapter. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That takes all the fun out of things, doesn't it? I can't repay evil for evil to anybody. For the most part, give the wrongs others commit against you to God. Now I say that for the most part because every once in a great blue moon, you may have to deal with somebody legally and bring someone else in to execute justice. But for the most part, most of what happens, most of the offenses are not in that arena at all. You give the others the, uh, the wrongs that others commit against you to God. Live at peace with everybody. As much as you possibly can, make peace with others. The author of Hebrews wrote, make every effort to live in peace with all men. They won't always let you, but you've got to always try. And finally, closing out, don't insist on getting even. There he goes again. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. You hear that killdeer up there? I mean, amen by a killdeer on the roof. For those of you listening by radio in the Midwest, you may not know what a killdeer is. I don't know. It's a bird, and it's on our ceiling. All right. Don't insist on getting even. God says, I'll do the judging. Well, when's he going to do it? He does it in his own time and in his own way. And it usually takes time. We're not to take vengeance into our own hands. Instead, our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Not really. Or if he's thirsty, give him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you, but you get the best of evil by doing good. Can we stand up together? Amen. Next time, the issue of submission to authority. Oh, that'll be a full house. (laughs) Romans 13, the issue of submission to authority. Let's thank God. Lord, we just thank you right now for these wonderful instructions from Romans 12. We present our bodies. Can we just do this right now? If you've never just said to God, I present my body a living sacrifice. Lord, I want to experience true freedom, so I give myself to you my body everything I am I give all the members of my body to you consecrated for your purpose in Jesus name let's sing it through one time make it a prayer now I surrender